Welcome to episode 147 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. In this episode, we'll discuss some of the stars and the terrestrial planets for late summer 2021. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane, and we're here in the rain. It's really pouring out now, Shane. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm in the basement recording, and I can hear it raining outside, <laughs> so it's crazy. Yeah, and uh, so I'm, I'm out in the wild, and... Uh, yeah, I've got my door open so that I have a, a signal and can uh, can do the recording. But yeah, if people hear like static in the background or something, that's uh, that's the pouring rain. So um, this is is a bit of a special episode. Um, we're recording for my astronomy class, so I cannot record the classes. Um, it, it's a it's a rule of the university, and you know, hey, I I agree with the rule. It's it's totally fine by me, um, sort of for privacy. And, and other reasons, I think, like copyright reasons and all this stuff. However, um, the student's request, um, one of the top requests is to have the classes recorded. So I get a bit of a pickle there. Hmm. Well, um, I guess it's a good thing we have a podcast. <laughs> so, and that was one thing that you and I had, had discussed in the past is that we, we can always use it for, uh, for different purposes. So um, I think this this would be of interest to our to our listeners, hopefully, because um, a lot of the content is similar. Um, and then as well, like I do have a little bit of a, I guess a, a gripe with just either recording a lecture and then and then putting it out or just sending people my slides because I don't know. I, I feel like it's it's the delivery of the content. Um, as well as the content itself, you know, it's like, um, who was it McEwen that said that the medium is the message. And I mean, it, it is part of the delivery as well of the information and just hearing somebody drone on, well, you know, I, I don't think that's, that's a good way to, to deliver that kind of content. And I think that by, by changing it up and having, having a discussion with you, um, I think it'll make it a little bit more interesting and, and more um, listener friendly, I guess, maybe is the way. Yeah. Well, that makes sense to me. And when I think about listener friendly, I think of Shane. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm touched. <laughs> All right. So we'll, we'll get going. Um, so this is meant to be like a very introductory astronomy class. And it's just, uh, it's just two classes. They're supposed to be about 90 minutes, uh, each, but we actually went for, uh, for a couple hours the first night, I, I had uh, I had a lecture prepared which I gave, and then and then people wished to have discussion afterward, which which was great. I'm happy uh, to do that. Um, and what I wanted to do is give people a little bit of the context for the stars and the planets, um, so that people could begin to learn to navigate the night sky, um, as well as locate the planets um, for themselves and discuss. Um, a little bit about those things, but um, Shane, you know what? What I'd like to do is just kind of walk you through the slides, and then uh, kind of have have you chime in um, with with your own sort of uh, two or three cents on them. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really good. All right. So in the class, one of the first things I like to do when we're talking about the night sky, and I think you do this as well, is we we try to tell people to start with what they know. And uh, usually when we're doing these lectures, when I was um, doing presentations at Grasslands uh, last week and the week before, um, I talk about the Big Dipper star pattern and 
And as you know, most, most people have seen the Big Dipper. I, I don't know that there's too many people out there that have never, that have never found the Big Dipper before, right? Yeah, for sure. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, um, yeah, I think everybody's seen it. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of the larger constellations with a lot of bright stars. So you can see it from quite light polluted locations as well. And so how can people use the Big Dipper to begin navigating around the night sky? Because you, you can use it to find a, a, a couple important stars right off the hop this time of year. Yeah. So if you use the, um, uh, so the far right hand side of the bowl of the big dipper or the pot, um, there's two stars that form that kind of right hand sidewall. If you just follow those stars upwards, you'll hit Polaris, which is the North star. And, uh, essentially, you know, is in a static location in the sky. Yeah. So what I tell people is that, and, and you and I have discussed this quite a bit before, is that if you hold your fist at arm's length, um, your fist, everybody's fists, and we're all built to about the same proportions, is about 10 degrees, what we call 10 degrees in the nighttime sky. And, and that may seem like, a, like an abstract number, um, but this is how it works, is that you can go out of the bowl of the Big Dipper, those two stars Shane referred to in, in the front of the bowl, we call those um, the pointer stars. And if you, uh, if you follow that uh, line that those first two stars make three fifths or about 30 degrees out, you'll find um, the North Star. But Shane, you mentioned that the North Star Polaris is static in the night sky. So how does that work? Um, it just is a, it, it's a chance alignment that there's a star in position of the earth's axis, the rotation axis. So it just so happens that that point in the sky is where like the earth is kind of spinning. So as a result, it doesn't appear to move. Whereas as you know, the earth rotates the sky, you know, it really takes on the uh, impression that the sky is rotating past you. Um, I don't know if that's a clear enough description. Um, yeah. 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 That, that sounds good. If you're at the North Pole, that that star Polaris would be uh, directly overhead. Now, that 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 star Polaris or the North Star, it's actually part of a of a smaller constellation, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's the kind of the first star of the handle for the Little Dipper. So it's that it's that end star there, and they're always they're always opposite in the sky to each other. I always. Like to think, I think somebody told me this once. It's kind of like they're always pouring into each other. Like if one is uh, is sort of right set up, the other one will be upside down. I think is the way it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you can actually use the the Big Dipper to kind of find a lot of other stars and and constellations. Uh, not gonna not gonna dive too deep into those. Um, but sort of speaking of handles, if if you use the handle of the Big Dipper, you you can find another. Uh, pretty bright star that uh, that's really easy to see at this time. You're even from the city. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can uh, arc to Arcturus from the uh, Big Dipper handle, and uh, yeah, very prominent star uh, this time of the year. So, like that handle of the Big Dipper, it actually forms like like a bit of an angle, and then you kind of just sort of swoop down. Um, to our tourists, which every night now is getting closer and closer to the horizon, but it's actually quite well placed now for, for doing this. 
what is it? It's about the same distance, isn't it? It's like 30 or 35 degrees from, from the end of the handle of the Big Dipper to that star Arcturus, which is sort of nice and high above the uh, Western horizon these nights. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's very prominent. And again, this is a, even within light polluted skies, you're probably quite able to, uh, to, you know, find all of these stars and, and uh, Arcturus even has a little bit of an orangey glow to the, to the naked eye. Like you can kind of just or start to see some of the star color there. Yeah. And even, even when we were out, we had a lot of smoke. Um, one of the nights we were doing uh, sky tours to people. Um, I think Arcturus was, was pretty much among the first stars. There's, there's four or five stars that are really bright at this time of year. And it's, it's one of the ones that, uh, <coughs> that people will point out and say, Hey, what's, what's that star there? You know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's one of them, but it, it's part of the, uh, of a larger constellation. That's pretty easy to, to draw out and see all in its own. So what, what, uh, constellation is Arcturus in? Um, be careful how you say it. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, I'm trying to think of how we are supposed to pronounce Bootes. Well, is that yeah. it? Bootes. Yeah. And I'm go. still going to call it boots. I think, cause when I say it, it sounds, it sounds really funny i i did that recently people like don't don't say that again <laughs> <laughs> don't don't ever do that again <laughs> don't don't do that just say it the wrong way we'll yeah. have your it's better when i do things wrong than when i try to do things right sometimes but uh, <laughs> but what what pattern does boots or botes make in the night sky well it depends who you ask um i guess the constellation itself when you draw it out to me looks like a bit of a kite um yeah when I see it in the night sky, I see a, like a martini glass, and I'm not sure if that's because of my love of libations, but um, hard to say. I've never seen the martini glass. Now oh, I need I'll, you to. I'll show it to you next time. <laughs> I need you to. Well, here, drink this first. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh yeah, I see all kinds of stuff now. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. Yeah, it does form this uh, this kite pattern that's that's I think super easy to see once once it's pointed out uh, to people yeah it's not so bad and uh, the neat part is is that once once you find that kite pattern of boots and and it's good to have a star chart I'll, I'll talk about some star chart recommendations in a bit um, but right beside boots is corona borealis which just forms a u it's like this this big u in the sky and it's pretty easy to see yeah you i think you can see those stars even from the city yeah yeah well mo- most of them i think you most should be those. able to you, you might have to they're not going to jump out at you. You know, you're, you're going to have to look at that region and probably let your eyes dark adapt as best as they can. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, you kind of keep working your way across, you get to Hercules and you can kind of draw those stars out. Like I said, we'll give some resources for star charts and that sort of thing shortly. And then we get to, uh, to Vega. Uh, but Vega is in an important, uh, important region. It's sort of, uh, got its own sort of larger, uh, pattern here between, uh, Vega in in Lyra, Deneb in Cygnus and uh, Altair and Aquila. Um, we have what we call like the large summer asterism that, that really helps people to to learn the summer sky. So so what is that thing called, Shane? How do you use it? Um, well, it's the summer triangle. Um, I think we've talked about this on previous podcasts. It, it's it's three of the brighter stars in this part of the sky. So you have Vega, which is in Lyra. Um, you know, the, I think that's the brightest summer star, if I'm not mistaken. 
and uh, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, yep. And then you have Deneb, which is um, kind of the uh, top of the, the Northern Cross of Cygnus. And then you um, have Altair, which is a, a fairly bright star in Aquila. And uh, together, these form a, a very large triangle across the sky. Like when, when you see it in a star chart, it doesn't look too significant, but the scale is kind of lost. And when you actually see it, you know, with your own eyes in the sky, um, you, you get an appreciation for how large this summer triangle is. Yeah, sort of the... Uh... Uh, the, the flat part, the top part between Vega and Deneb, it, it cuts across like directly overhead, but it spans like I think about probably a quarter or a third of the distance of the whole, you know, sort of uh, overhead region. And then Altair looks like it's, you know, a pretty good ways up from the horizon, but, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a stretch, um, you know, sort of between all those, but the one thing I like about the summer triangle is that these stars come out early. So they're, they're easy to see Like when we're out there waiting for it to get dark, you know, it's one of the first things that we point out to try to orient people. And then I say, well, you can watch these as the night gets darker and then right through the middle is where the Milky Way cuts. So that people, people can, uh, can learn where the Milky Way is and, and be able to come back uh, and, and to see that. So here we have a shot on, on the right side. Do you recognize that? That's the 76 ranch from the grasslands. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, nice little wood. Fence. And so the milk, yeah, this, and so what we're looking at here, yeah, that's, uh, that's part of the old uh, corral there in, in my slide. And the Milky Way uh, appears as a band uh, that we see going from, the southern horizon right up through the overhead and off into the uh, northeastern horizon as, as sort of those autumn constellations are, are rising. So Galileo was the first to resolve that band into individual stars through his telescope in 1610. He wrote about it, but um, before that, you know, they, they, they just thought, I think they just thought they were clouds or mist or they really didn't know what they were, did they? Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think we've got a bit of a a bit of a delay there, but uh, but we'll just have to have to work through that. So it wasn't until the early 1920s um, that it was discovered that uh, that those those stars and and nebulas and uh, clusters that we have in our own Milky Way galaxy um, form our own galaxy and that there's many other galaxies uh, that are out there. I think it was Edwin Hubble that, uh, that made that discovery. Sorry, Shane, I think I can hear you now. Uh, okay. No, I wasn't saying anything. So carry on, sir. Okay. So we have a variety of stars and clusters and nebulas that, that you can actually see in the summer. Uh, Milky Way, we have the uh, Lagoon Nebula, which is a star region up in Sagittarius. We have uh, the Great Rift in the galaxy. So if you look at the Milky Way on, on the right side, you can kind of see that there's some, some star clouds or some milkiness. And on the left side, we can actually see that, uh, that there's actually more of this, but then right in the middle, we can see that, uh, that there's this uh, dark patch there. 
And then we also have some clusters and we have uh, some asterisms like the, uh, we have the coat hanger cluster. And then uh, there's some other different nebulas like the, like the Trifhead nebula and, and that sort of thing. So Shane, is there any other um, const- like patterns or, or nebulas or clusters that, uh, that you would like to add to this? Yeah, there, there's a lot in that area. The uh, the coat hanger cluster or asterism, I guess it is, I think, or I can't remember now if that's an asterism or, or a cluster. Um, you know, that's one that I love in that region of the sky. It looks super cool. And, um, you know, you need a little bit of a wider field to take it all in, but most, uh, I think most telescopes would be able to get it. Um, and it's just a, a neat placement of stars, a fairly bright stars in, in that area of the sky. That one, uh, I, I look at that one pretty regularly. Yeah, kind of backing up to the uh, summer triangle, though, we have Altair, Vega, and Deneb. And uh, Altair and Vega are about, uh, they're about four and five times the size of our sun. But then the sun compared to Deneb is just like this tiny dot. And when you're looking at the stars, um, you got to keep in mind that sometimes they might appear to be about the same brightness in the night sky, but they're, uh, sometimes those stars can be um, really, really far away. They're just super, super bright. Um, and that uh, some of them are just sort of moderately bright or moderately large, uh, and they're, they're close by to us. So I'm going to move on to, uh, to chat about the solar system there, Shane, unless you have anything more to add about the, the stars and what people can sort of expect to see in the summer sky? No, no, um, really, yeah, nothing else to add other than, you know, don't forget to observe the closest star, which is our sun, if you have the right filters in play. Um, we're starting to get out of the solar minimum, and, and there will be more and more detail on the surface of the, of the sun to observe in terms of uh, sunspots. And if you have like a hydrogen alpha type of telescope, you know, there's always detail to observe with those, no matter where you are in the solar cycle. Yeah, so like Shane was saying, um, the sun is at the center of our solar system. We have eight planets, uh, dwarf planets, asteroids, uh, the Kuiper Belt, the Oort Cloud. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the terrestrial planets. So um, what are the terrestrial planets uh, there, Shane? Um, well, to some people's dismay, it's the eight inner planets. Um, so that would be, you know, if I start uh, at the closest to the sun and work my way out, it would be Mercury, Venus, of course, Earth, where we live, uh, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Yeah. So the first four are those terrestrial planets. And then the last oh, four, I think sorry. the, re- that, no, no worries. Yeah. We, we have a bit of a delay here. So we're kind of we're kind of working through that while we're while we're keeping the recording going, <laughs> and uh, and those second uh, the second set of planets Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. I think they call them more like the uh, the ice giants now than, yeah. than the gas giants, which is what they used to call them when I was young. Right, right, yeah. And, and to answer your original question more accurately, the terrestrial planets are the inner sort of rocky or rock planets or, or ones that are not you know. Uh, having a lot of gas in the atmosphere, like the outer planets. So it's the inner four uh, planets. And then there's the, the now so-called uh, dwarf planets, uh, Pluto, Eris, Ceres, and Kume uh, and Makemake. Um, you know, uh, th- these are very small planets, or I think they're out in like the Kuiper Belt and 
and pretty difficult to see. Uh, uh, I only know one person who's recently tracked down Pluto, uh, uh, my friend Clark Muir. He's, he's been on the show a couple of times. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I, I can't recall if he showed it to me or, or sent me a sketch or something like that, but I've never successfully hunted down Pluto. Uh, have you ever hunted that down, Shane? Nope, I have not. Uh, you definitely need some aperture for that. Like I think Pluto, isn't that around magnitude like 14 or something? Um, something like that. It's quite dim. And unlike, like, you know, any of the other planets, you can tell they're a planet typically by how fast they move through the eyepiece, or you can at least make out like a globular structure that it's, uh, you know, an orb, not a star. And um, Pluto will just look like a very dim star. And you will not really see it move through the course of the night. Um, maybe if you got it, you know, at a wide span. But what most people do to confirm an observation of Pluto is they'll uh, get the star field and sketch it, and then identify which star-like object they believe to is Pluto, and then they'll come back the next night or a couple nights later and and just uh, compare their sketch to what they're seeing now and see if what they believe to be Pluto has moved against the background stars. And if so, then you can confirm that you've, uh, observed Pluto. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to, uh, to sort of instruct people how they can actually find it for themselves. So kind of moving back to, to the sun, I I've got a slide here on the sunshine. Uh, but, uh, when I think of, of a bright ball of burning hydrogen in our sky. I, I think of you. So maybe I'll, I'll let you talk about the sun for, for a minute. <laughs> sure. Um, so as mentioned, it, it is the closest star to earth. And, and what's kind of neat about the sun is it's a fairly common uh, star. So if you observe the sun, you're, you're beginning to understand or, or see how a lot of the other stars in our um, uh, galaxy operate or, or look. And, um, the, the sun has a number of different layers to it. And basically what, what the different filtering available does is let you see some of those different layers. Um, the most common one is a, a white light filter, which will allow you to see uh, sunspots. And there's a lot of different detail within sunspots. There's the uh, penumbra, there's the umbra, there's bridging, which connects uh, sunspots together. Um, and then you can see some granulation off often at the limbs of, of the sun. So like at the edges, um, you can see that kind of stuff, which is uh, very cool. Um, then the next probably most common filter, but is very specialized, um, is a hydrogen alpha um, filter. Now, not to be confused, there's hydrogen alpha like filters that you can screw onto the bottom of an eyepiece. Those are not for the sun. Those are for imaging the night sky. Um, a hydrogen alpha solar telescope is very specific. And what it allows you to see is uh, prominences, um, which are um, the sun ejecting matter off the edges. And then most of it returns back to the sun, but some of it actually does make its way out into the solar system. Um, you can see flares, you can see sunspots as well. Um, and then all sorts of uh, like surface detail, again, more kind of granulation, um, it's, it's an extremely detailed view of the sun. And if you've never looked through a hydrogen alpha solar scope, um, you should try to, to get your eyes, uh, on one, you know, through a club or, or a public event near you, uh, because it is quite special. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's, it. that's a good point. Yeah. That, uh, you, you can't just go out and, and look at the sun or you can't just go out and buy a telescope and look at the sun. Um, they require these specialized filters, either a, a white light filter or 
or one of these specialized hydrogen um, alpha filters. And, and really the best way to look at it, that the way that I, I enjoy most looking at the sun is to, uh, is to find you or, or somebody else that has one of these hydrogen alpha uh, telescopes and, to, uh, and just go observing with, with you guys, even though I have my own white light filters, probably, uh, you know, when, when I have my best views is when I know that uh, we're looking at it through one of those uh, safe telescopes. And I, I don't recommend people just going out and buying their own uh, solar filters. Um, look up your local astronomy club and, and get in touch with them. And, and they, they love to have people come out and, and look through their gear. And sort of from my perspective is I do like enjoy, I, I enjoy looking at the sun, but uh, I'm just not going to go and buy a specialized uh, telescope or piece of equipment for doing it. Um, but people like Shane and other people like in the local club, um, they've gone and, and already done this and, and love sharing the views. So it, it just doesn't make sense for, for me to do it. And for most people out there, I would say, uh, yeah, look up your local club and, and go observing with them first before, before you try to do anything, but never look at the sun without a special builder. Yeah, for sure. It'll cause permanent damage almost instantly. Yeah. And, uh, and one thing you did is you went down and looked at a, at a solar eclipse uh, a couple of years ago. And I think you were saying that there, there is an eclipse coming up here in, uh, in, I think, three more years or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a couple different types of eclipses. There's a, an annular eclipse, which is um, a partial, basically a partial eclipse. The entire sun is not blocked by the moon. Um, but every so often we get a total eclipse where the moon essentially blocks out all of the sunlight. And it's one of the, it's not one of, it is the most incredible thing I've ever seen uh, in the sky. Um, it was absolutely stunning. Um, I saw the 2017 eclipse in Wyoming, and there is one coming up again in 2024 in North America. Now, uh, I don't have the eclipse calendar in front of me. There's eclipses every other year or so, I think, like they're not super rare, but sometimes they're only visible in the ocean or in the Arctic or like very remote places. It's, it's not super common that they pass through like very populated areas that are easily accessible. So when there is an eclipse like that, a total eclipse, uh, it draws a lot of attention. So in 2024, um, for like the U S it, uh, like starts, I think in Texas, and it kind of makes its way up through like Montreal and Canada. And then I think it even hits like our East coast, like Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, so there's quite a wide band. It's in April of 2024, um, yeah. which uh, April is sometimes not good weather, you know, for eclipses because it's cloudy, you know, as we transition from the seasons and, and, uh, you know, that's a, we, we could probably almost do an entire episode on eclipse preparation and things to be aware of. Uh, but yeah. you know, knowing the, the local weather at that time is a big part of it too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's going to go through uh, central, uh, New Brunswick and, uh, and, and not Labrador. I think it's the, Av I think it's near the Avalon, uh, oh, but okay. it, anyway, cuts, cuts right through the center. I think probably near Gander anyway, mm. uh, anyway, central, central Newfoundland, uh, which, uh, which typically is extremely cloudy, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, there should be some good places. Goes through Texas and, uh, and Alabama and uh, Indiana and Ohio and uh, Southern Ontario or New York, that kind of thing. So yeah, it goes, goes through some uh, well-populated, easy uh, to get to uh, areas. So moving, moving on, let's move to Mercury. So 
Mercury, uh, it's not that much larger than our moon. It's only just a hair larger uh, than our moon. Have, have you ever observed Mercury through the telescope, Shane? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, ages ago. I looked at it with, I'm trying to think which telescope. I think it was my 80 millimeter William Optics and was not thoroughly impressed. I didn't really see anything. It, it's so small and um, I, I've, I've observed it more naked eye. Yeah, it's it's pretty tough. It's uh, it's very close to the horizon. That's one thing with Venus and Mercury is is that uh, because they're inside um, sort of the the Earth on the racetrack of the solar system, they never get very high up in the sky, do they? No, not at all. No, it's uh, it's a. Uh... When it's visible, it's quite low. And uh, as such, you're looking through a lot of atmosphere, which means you're just not likely to get very good views. And the, and the earliest astronomy texts like the uh, Moab and, um, and some of the other early Babylonian uh, records, that they talk about Mercury as being the jumping planet because um, I think they'd recognize that, that it sort of jumps back and forth uh, between the evening and, and the morning sky. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very small planet. It's only about the size, um, of the moon or just a little bit larger. And, uh, and, you know, it also looks quite a bit like the moon actually in, in the space photos, eh? Yeah, it sure does. You know, it has that, I don't know, that sort of grayish color with a lot of, um, pockmarks from, uh, you know, impacts of, of celestial bodies and, and similar to the moon, it has some lighter areas too, to indicate maybe, uh, like a younger area of, of the surface, you know, or an area that's been disrupted and, you know, churning up some of the soil from underneath, which is, a you know, more reflective or, or brighter. Yeah. And, uh, there's sort of a funny thing about the rotation of Mercury, you know, it's thought for a long time that the same, uh, side of Mercury always faced the sun. Um, but in the sixties, they proved that the, the planet had a three, two, uh, spin orbit resonance, uh, rotating three times for every, uh, two revolutions, uh, around the sun. And, uh, so that means that it's, uh, that it's year is close to, uh, half an earth, uh, year. And it's, uh, it, it, it does make it a, a very difficult and, and strange, uh, planet, uh, to observe. But like the moon, and if you look at the craters on, on Mercury in the space uh, spacecraft images, um, they look just like the craters on the moon. Like it almost looks identical, eh? Yeah, it sure does. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you didn't know that it was Mercury, it would be very easy to mistake it for the moon just looking at these images. And they have discovered that there's some ice in those craters as well, even though it's, it's much closer to the sun and uh, only uh, takes 88 days to go around the sun. And so it's really getting baked there. Um, there's still uh, some ice in in the craters that are there. Hmm. Um, that's pretty interesting. I guess without an atmosphere, it probably doesn't retain a lot of heat. Um, I'm just speculating. I'm, I'll I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right there. And and then as well, like um, because there's no atmosphere and there's no like circulation of of the heat um, that that Mercury is receiving. Um, any kind of shadows would still be, uh, would still be nice and cool. Yeah, exactly. So we'll move on to, uh, to Venus and Venus is, is actually almost like, like how Mercury is, uh, almost identical to the size of our, of our moon. Um, Venus is, uh, is often seen as, as Earth's sister planet because 
it's uh, very close to being just about as, as the same size as the Earth, eh? Yeah, yeah, they're very similar in size, although uh, I don't think you'd want to be on Venus. I don't, I don't think you'd last very long. No, no, you wouldn't. Ancient civilizations, though, they did recognize that it was both the morning star and the evening star. Um, and, and they had appropriate names uh, for this. Some, sometimes they call it like the bright queen of the sky because, man, it sure is bright. I think it gets to like negative fourth magnitude or something like that. It can get super bright. Yeah, so bright. And um, what's always uh, incredible to me is it's super bright. And if you look at it through a telescope, you'll see that it's always in phase, which means you're not even really seeing the entire disc or the entire disc doesn't have the opportunity to reflect uh, all of the light that's there. Um, so it would be incredibly bright if the uh, entire disc was reflected. Yeah, like if you were on Mercury, you would be able to see uh, Venus uh, all night at some point during the year. And, and, you know, you would be, uh, you would be quite, uh, you, you would have quite a spectacular object there and it would be, you know, at times much, uh, much closer, but, you know, like you were saying, it's really neat because, um, these planets are inside Venus and Mercury inside the orbit of the earth, just like when the moon is on the inside of our orbit, um, it displays, uh, phases, um, like, like real crescent phases. And it's very, very neat when the moon and Venus are close in the sky, like they were a couple of weeks ago, you could actually look up and, and you could sort of see how close those phases were. And as the moon kind of moved away from Mercury, you could see that it, it was getting a, a larger phase uh, than Mercury would have in the nighttime sky. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a neat thing to see for sure. And it, and to me, it's one of those ones too, that never gets old. I, I, again, I, I enjoy looking at Venus um, with a telescope. I, I don't know if everybody or, you know, if all astronomers are the same, but I enjoy trying to uh, tease out the detail, but also just see what phase it's in. Yeah. I'm just going to jump ahead a, a couple slides, but uh, you know, they, they did, the Russians did land a spacecraft there. I think it was back in the seventies. And you were saying like, you, you wouldn't want to be there on the surface. And uh, absolutely, I would not want to be there on the surface. And uh, in, in this shot, you can see a piece of the spacecraft and it looks like it's rusted and weathered, like it's been up there for 30 or 40 years, maybe. And uh, no, it was just there briefly uh, for a few hours at that point at most. And the, the whole thing is just already starting to come apart. Took some photos, beamed those back, and then it was just crushed on the, on the surface, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, pretty hostile place. So Venus actually has um, a set of space missions um, that are going uh, to it. I think it's Da Vinci and Veritas. Um, and they're, uh, they're going to float around. One of them is going to float around the atmosphere, I think, for a while. And one of them is going to be in orbit around it for a while. And they're going to send back some, uh, some, hopefully, some new research on you know, how Venus got into the state it was in and whether, whether or how active the volcanoes are on the surface. And... Uh, and maybe if there is life in those clouds, I know recently or in the past few months, they, they thought maybe they, they found some evidence for life uh, in the clouds of Venus. So that's going to be interesting. Yeah, for sure. So I'll just talk about the moon uh, super briefly. Like, And we we're talking about the moon in, in the last episode a little bit. You were looking at the moon naked eye and saying, uh, you know, that it was easy to see sort of the bright areas which are the highlands and the dark areas, which are the Mare, which they, they thought were seas at one point in time. Um, but I guess sort of for starters, for people just getting going to look at, at the moon, and the moon is our, 
our natural satellite here of the Earth. Sometimes they refer to the moon and the Earth as like a binary planet. But when you're looking at the moon, there's a shadow on that moon. And, and what is that shadow and, and how can people use it to, to help see things on the moon, Shane? Um, so the shadow is, we call it the terminator. So it's like where the, the kind of lit part of the moon terminates to the dark point, uh, which is unlit. And, um, what, what's really neat about that location and it shifts all night and, you know, throughout the course of the month, um, is that it provides great contrast because the features like the craters and the, the mountain ranges and the valleys and all of the irregularities, um, take on some shadowing, uh, along that region. And with that shadowing, you get really amazing contrast, you know, and it allows you to see a ton of detail on the moon. Um, and it's, it's really quite stunning. And, and if you really want to see kind of the inverse of that, just look at the moon when it's full, when there is no shadowing, no terminator, it's really hard to see a lot of the, like the crater detail that you're used to seeing along the Terminator. So, um, you know, big difference. Yeah. And, uh, you can see quite a few craters and one of the things, um, and I, and I know we've talked about this already, but, um, with even small binoculars, like the new binoculars you get, which are just a tiny, tiny pair of binoculars, you can actually see quite a bit on the moon. You can see quite a few of these craters, eh? Oh yeah. Yeah. A, like any binoculars will transform the moon uh, from what you see with your naked eye and really start to show some craters. And really the only thing aperture does for you on the moon is just allow you to see more and more craters. Um, you know, the, the larger the instrument, you'll start to notice craters inside of craters and uh, you know, re resolving much smaller details. Nice. Well, let's move on to, to Mars. Mars is one of my, uh, most favorite things to to observe through the telescope and we had a spectacular uh, Martian opposition there uh, last October Shane I, I don't know if you want to sort of quickly share any of your views that you had through uh, your instruments of Mars last uh, last October yeah the last opposition was great because Mars was quite high in the sky and it it didn't have any dust storms, which was quite nice because um, the dust storms can prevent us from seeing um, a lot of the surface detail. But, you know, seeing the polar caps um, was, was, you know, pretty regular. We watched them recess. Um, we saw some of the clouds uh, along the limb of Mars. And then, like, there's a lot of surface detail um, similar in a way to the moon in terms of, like, there's kind of bright and dark regions. It's just with the, with Mars, it's orange instead of kind of that icy gray uh, that's on the moon. Um, but anyway, a ton of detail. Um, and, you, you know, what was quite stunning to me was I was using a, a three-inch telescope and I was seeing so much detail on Mars. It, it really blew my mind. Yeah, I was able to... Uh... To have a have a pretty good night with my four inch and i was running about 350 power on it and uh i could see some of the clouds sort of going across the surface of it which is pretty cool you can see maybe some frost um that was uh that was on the uh on the side where, where the sun was just sort of rising um yeah it's it's pretty incredible and and you know it, it's incredible to think how much detail we can see considering Mars is, is sort of about partway in size between the moon and the earth. It, it's only, I think about, uh, what is it like a sixth, the size of the earth or something like that. It's, it's, it's quite a bit smaller. Like when you see them sort of in a, in a graphic side by side, 
um, Mars is, is nowhere near the size of the earth. Eh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That when you, when you consider the distance and the size of it, it's, it, it can be a very challenging object to observe, but, uh, it does give up a lot of detail with the right conditions. Um, and you don't need a, a giant telescope to see some of those details. Yeah. And it has these polar caps, but I, I think they're just like frozen carbon dioxide gases um, in the north and, and the south polar regions. And I mean, we, you can really see those through a telescope and it just looks like, you know, uh, maybe what you imagine Earth would look like um, from a great distance that, you know, maybe you could you could take some, some skis down there and ski across it. I, I don't know that that would be possible in that kind of uh, material. It, it's not really frozen water so much as it is. Uh, just these frozen gases, though, but they are quite visible through small telescopes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Some of the other things on Mars that, that people might be a little bit surprised to hear about is that it actually is the largest volcano and, and largest set of volcanoes in the solar system. It has this Olympus Mons, which is several times the size of, of Everest. It's a big shield volcano. And if you were on the surface of uh, Olympus Mons, you, you might not even notice there just would be a very slight grade in one direction or another indicating which is sort of the, the higher point of the caldera and which is the lower point, uh, you know, hardly could get a ball rolling on it. it. It's just so big. And what happens on Mars is that there isn't any plate um, tectonic action going on. So any kind of uh, volcano that, that, that formed in the past um, and they're pretty sure that these are now all dormant volcanoes um, they're, they're over a weak spot in the mantle and that material, uh, the magma, had just been welling up over, over long, long periods of time. But since there's no plate tectonics, those plates don't drift. Like here on the Earth, when we have, um, have such a spot, uh, like in the Hawaiian Islands, you know, the, the, the material, the magma wells up, comes out through the volcano, volcanoes or volcanic fissures. And, you know, it's, it, it forms a bit of a, an island and then and then as that plate moves along, um, you know, a different region is over top and then another island forms and then the plate continues to move along and then another region forms over that spot. But on Mars, it's just the same uh, spots over and over again. So you just get the magma piling up into ever, ever higher forms. And now Mars is, is dormant uh, volcanically, they think. Yeah, yeah, pretty interesting stuff. And then we have Valis uh, Marineris. And uh, have, have you ever tried to see Valles Marineris on the surface of, of Mars? This is the Mariner Valley. It's kind of like a huge version of the uh, Grand Canyon down in the States. Did you ever try to see that? Um, I don't know if I have seen that. I, I think you probably need a little more aperture than what I've been using on, on Mars. I, would a three-inch resolve that? I don't know. Mm. Um, so, you know, when I was first looking at Mars, I kind of got Valles Marineris and Certus Major mixed up because I don't know what I was looking at at first. Certus Major is just a huge dark feature that's super easy to see and you can almost see it like in a good pair of binoculars. But uh, Valles Marineris um, is actually near uh, the volcanoes. It's, it's, uh, there's another set of three volcanoes and, and it's, it's close to those. And uh, I had a really good morning last fall when it was at its closest and was using some pretty high power, my four inch, but uh, I can't really say that I saw it. I could see like shading in the general area. I, I located the right area and I could definitely see some inconsistencies is, is probably what I would, what I would have to say. Kind of like uh, right up there with observing surface detail on Mercury. It's about mm -hmm. that easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That would be hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, 
can't uh, can't really see it. But uh, it was sort of one of those surprises that they discovered um, in subsequent missions with the Mariner spacecraft. Um, wasn't wasn't seen at first. It kind of was like uh, it was kind of one of those things that, that they found later. But one of the things that they have seen is uh, they have seen fresh asteroid impacts on on Mars. So they've uh, they've had spacecraft in orbit there. And those spacecraft have imaged the same regions over and over again. And then sometimes they notice that there's a black spot. Like, hmm, I didn't think that was there before. And they go back and look at old images. And, uh, and there wasn't. But uh, sort of the mystery with, with uh, Mars and, and it really captured uh, human imagination um, was that it has this strange retrograde motion through the sky. And Mars, um, at times when people were looking at it since, since ancient times, it would appear to move backwards in the sky amongst the stars, and then and then eventually it would begin to move forward. And uh, the reason for this is the same reason why when you pass a car on the highway, as you're going by that car, um, the car uh, appears almost to move backwards in relation to the background landscape, and then it sort of returns along its course once you once you progress past that vehicle. And it was Johannes Kepler in the late 1500s who used Tycho Brahe's observations who who was able to figure out this uh, this the laws of planetary motion, uh, which are which are still taught at the universities, and I'm not going to go into all the the math on that one, but uh, but it really captured people's imagination because uh, why was Mars doing this strange sort of loop de loop in in the sky every time um, we seem to go by it? But uh, but it did capture human imagination, and you know one of the other things was when. Percival Lowell was making his observations in the early 1900s and thought that there was uh, canals on Mars. And then, of course, we have the War of the Worlds, which sort of uh, played on that, that, that maybe there was, there was other life forms on Mars. Have you, uh, did you ever see the canals on Mars, Shane? Uh, like the imaging? When, you, when you've looked at Mars, did you ever see the canals? Uh, no, but, uh, you know, I could definitely understand how people could be led to, you know, believe that, especially with a pretty large aperture. Yeah. Like when you're looking at it, it kind of like, there's like fleeting glimpses of, of like low resolution surface detail and high resolution. So like you're getting this mishmash of information that's coming through your visual system and it can be uh, really difficult to, to sort through it. And then it's almost like in a way, like if you look at static or, or different chaotic patterns in nature, you'll see uh, sometimes your brain will start trying to make sense out of it all. So I think that's, that's really uh, what people were seeing. And then of course, as, as you know, Mars captured people's imagination and there was going to be a close approach of Mars. And as, uh, as Yerkes built their, their giant, uh, I think it's like a 40 inch refracting telescope. Um, you know, uh, some companies were looking to, to maybe capitalize on a whole new civilization, a whole new planet with beings ready to spend their hard-earned Martian bucks on things like uh, soap. So, you know, you, you would see uh, Mars uh, feature prominently in, in, a lot of, uh, in a lot of commercials, uh, you know, sort of around the turn of the century and, and when they were getting some of these big telescopes up and running. So, so hey, you know, uh, uh, that, that would be a good way to, to expand one's uh, customer base, you know, they thought. But uh, unfortunately... Uh, Martians, uh, if, if they do exist, um, are going to be microbial and uh, certainly scope is their enemy. 
<laughs> well, uh, now we know. <laughs> don't, don't give the aliens soap, I guess. So with that, with that, I, I sort of think we'll uh, we'll just hop ahead really quick to some some of the tools and techniques and resources that people can use um, for enjoying the sky. Um, one of the one of the things that that I recommend people use for getting going, Shane. I don't know what your thoughts are, but uh, I think that Night Watch by Terrence Dickinson is probably the best book that people can use for learning the nighttime sky. Yeah, for sure. You know, we've talked about that book uh, multiple times uh, on the podcast and it's probably the best beginner one out there. And what makes it so good is, is that Terrence Dickinson is, is a great writer. It's very clearly written. Um, he's a Canadian writer, so um, it might be a little bit Canadian centric, but it's pretty good for, for most places in the world. Um, and then it has these really great basic star charts showing you um, what a star chart of the nighttime sky looks like by the season. And then it shows like a representation of what it might look like if you're out on the, under the stars. And that's just incredibly useful. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is really good. Um, you know, another one that we don't, we've talked about a little bit, but um, you know, if you kind of want to maybe like, this would be okay for a beginner, but maybe getting a little more advanced. Um, but it's one that I really enjoy. It's the observing handbook and catalog of deep sky objects. It's no longer in print, but you can find used copies for uh, fairly good. Actually, no, it is still in print. It looks like. And uh, what I like about it is it has tons of deep sky objects, but it also provides like descriptions of what it looks like through various apertures, whether, you know, you're using binoculars or like a hundred millimeter telescope or a real big telescope. And I find, you know, I think that that's a good guide for, um, you know, new people, but even experienced observers, because it gives you some context about, or, or maybe sets some expectations of what you can see at the telescope or I shouldn't say telescope, whatever instrument you might be using. And speaking of other instruments, you know, we recommend um, binoculars to get going. Like uh, I think eight by forties are probably the best ones. And uh, you know, I used to say uh, the Pentax uh, or the Nikon um, action extremes are, are, are the best two selections. And then I noticed recently when we went looking, we couldn't find the Pentax WP versions anymore. I don't know if they're just sort of, not available or out of production, but um, looks like the Nikon Action Extremes, which are, you know, I think, I think they're around $160 American, around $200 or so Canadian. Um, but I think they make probably the, the best, um, the best uh, optic for getting going in astronomy. I think a lot of the time people think about telescopes and, and what telescope they want to buy. Uh, but I do try to guide people towards getting a pair of binoculars, getting night watch, and, uh, and starting to learn those stars and, and constellations using that equipment because, uh, because that, that is an easier learning curve um, to learning astronomy than just getting a telescope and trying to sort through all the technical challenges uh, with such an instrument. I don't know what your thoughts are, though, Shane. Yeah, it's a great way to learn the sky, and it's, it's the simplest way, and, and it's... Um it's something that I still do, you know, it's something like using binoculars. Sometimes I won't use my telescope because the binoculars provide such a pleasing view of the sky and really nothing beats binoculars. If you just want to like pan around the sky and just, you know, see what's up there. Um, they're, they're really fun to use. And the other thing, um, I need, need to mention is getting a, getting or making a red flashlight because the eye isn't as sensitive to red. And you need to keep what's called 
your dark adaption. And, and when people are getting going, and, and I know when I was young, and I really struggled with this is I would take a bright, and, and in those days, our flashlights weren't even that bright, but I took like a bright white flashlight out and the little star chart I cut out of the paper. And when you're going back and forth from looking at this brightly white lit paper to the night sky, even if you're in a dark sky like I was, it's really hard to see the, the, the constellations and the stars because you're, you're kind of ruining your, your night vision when you're going back and forth between the bright paper and white light and the night sky. And now that we have cell phones and tablets and computers and that with apps on them, people are kind of going out and doing the same thing and struggling because their bright phone or tablet is uh, interfering with their night vision. And it's difficult to go back and forth from the chart to the, uh, to the night sky. So we recommend that people make a little red flash that you can do this very simply, just get a cheap red flash that you can either paint the lens uh, red with red, a few layers of red nail polish, or get some sort of uh, red gel or any kind of red uh, cellophane or something like that to cover the lens. But I did recently cover my, my flashlight on my cell phone with a red piece of cardboard. And I got to say that the light on my, on my cell phone was still so bright through that red uh, cardboard that it was, it was still way too bright. So unfortunately, I think phones are, phones are pretty much out for uh, trying to use for, for astronomy if you really um, want an easier way to learn the night sky. Yeah, for sure. So the last resource um, that I recommend is the skymaps.com uh, um, resource. And what they have at skymaps.com is these beautiful charts and they're very simple and easy to read. Um, and so you just make a little red flashlight, you print this chart off, and, and that would probably be your absolute bare bones um, way to get started because none of this is gonna cost you very much money. And you, you decide astronomy isn't for you, you haven't really spent much. Um, so you just print off the chart, take it out with your little red flashlight. And, um, and what they do at skymaps.com is they, they make a, a bit of a calendar column on the left side of the, the chart. And it tells you when like the moon and planets are going to be close to each other. So for example, last night, the moon and Jupiter were close to each other in the night sky. So it would have said like that the moon is, is just a few degrees, like five degrees above Jupiter. And we talked early in this presentation about how your fist at arm's length is 10 degrees. So this is just half of that distance. So you now have the tool of knowing how to measure the night sky. And then there is a resource for putting that to practical application and learning the stars. And it will tell you, um, it will show you which stars are visible in the evening sky and when the moon and planets are going to be near stars so that you can kind of build on that knowledge. So you know where the Big Dipper is, you know how to find the North Star. We talked about that. You learn how to find Arcturus. Well, there's a, a free map that you can download and print and then see where all that stuff is. And then just make yourself a little red flashlight and, uh, and then just follow along month to month. And over the course of a year, if you just print that off every month, have your little red flashlight and you start to try to identify different stars and planets as, as the moon goes past them and maybe learn a new constellation or two every month, you would, you would really have a good knowledge of the night sky and how it works by the end of the year, I think. Yeah, for sure. No, I like that. Okay. Well, anything else to add, Shane? That's sort of sort of it for for my lecture for this week. I, I really appreciate you kind of hopping in and chiming in. Uh, did, don't mean to put you on the spot too much, but uh, I know a lot of this stuff is 
is old hat for you. And thanks for your patience. We did have a, a bit of a sound challenge earlier, a bit of a delay there. So uh, thanks for kind of uh, being patient and helping, helping me stumble through that. Yeah, for sure. It worked out okay. Okay. Anything to add? No, that is it. All right. Perfect. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>